Hey everybody, thanks for checking out the Glendale Road Church of Christ podcast. You're welcome to join us anytime you're around. We are at 1101 Glendale Road in Murray, Kentucky. We meet for worship every Sunday morning at 9 a.m., followed by our Bible study at 10 a.m., and we come back every Sunday evening for a bonus worship hour at 6 p.m. Also, every midweek on Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have a Bible study. You'd be welcome to join us. We'll be sure to save a seat for you. Now, here's this week's sermon. The scripture reading this morning will come from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Verse 4. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and sat him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. You may be seated. God is good all the time. If you have a pew Bible, we're on page 1525. I want to paint you a picture of this day. On the Sunday that preceded the week of Jesus, or excuse me, the Sunday of the week that Jesus was to be crucified, there are a lot of events that took place. So picture, if you will, for a second that Sunday morning and the city of Jerusalem. By Sunday evening, when the sun went down, excuse me, Saturday evening when the sun went down, the Sabbath was concluded and the first day of the week began. The next morning it's early and rumors are already spreading. People are saying, you aren't going to believe who's coming to town. Families stumble over themselves to prepare. Women grab cloaks, men cut palms. Kids organize confetti. The city officials sweep the temple and clean the streets. His presence demands it. His followers love it. They continue to say, you aren't going to believe who's coming to town today. All kinds of people are lining the streets, the old, young, and everyone in between. Everyone wants to get a glimpse of his royalty. Everyone wants to see his entourage because it's not every day that Pilate comes to town. You see, before Jesus made his entry into Jerusalem, it was preceded by the entry of Pilate and his entourage. He entered from the west gate, riding a white stallion, caravanning with his entourage of Roman officers, jesters, cooks, cupbearers, and everybody else. 
And people would line the streets to see him because it's not every day when Rome comes to town. And they know Pilate is an extension of Caesar. He's the face of Roman Israel, so when he rolls up, everybody notices. People cheer, people extend him the courtesy of respecting his authority. And there's also historical evidence that people threw down their cloaks and palm branches as Pilate entered the city. Now imagine about the same time at the northern gate of Jerusalem, Jesus enters. Rather than a war horse, he's riding an untested donkey. He's not caravanning, he's carpooling, if you will. He doesn't travel with an entourage, but with fishermen and women. Nobody is supposed to notice Jesus entering Jerusalem. After all, unlike Pilate, he's in the eyes of many a nobody from nowhere. But that's not what happens. The celebration reserved for Pilate is transferred to Jesus. It's so interesting to see the two contrasts, how Pilate entered in, on this stallion and with officers and this entourage, Jesus on an untested colt, this little donkey that had never been ridden before. Now you, you look at the two and you go, surely a king would be on this magnificent stallion. But you see King David also rode on a donkey. In Israelite society, the donkey was seen as the animal of royalty. When you look at some of the triumphant processions throughout the Bible, and we'll look at a couple of them, the first one is 1 Chronicles 13, verses 5 through 8. And this recalls the story of the entry of David with the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. Here's what it says. So David gathered all Israel together from Shihor to, in Egypt to as far as the entrance of Hamath to bring the Ark of God from Kirjath Jearim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, to Kirjath Jearim, which belonged to Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, the Lord, who dwells between the cherubim, where his name is proclaimed. So they carried the Ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ayo drove the cart. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might and with all their singing, on harps and on stringed instruments, on tambourines and cymbals, and with trumpets. A wonderful procession. And, and you know, you think about processions in life, you often have the procession of a bridal party at a wedding. On certain holidays, you'll have the procession of people walking down the streets for Veterans Day, Fourth of July, and various other things. So there's this whole notion in civilization of a procession and how it demands attention. Kind of an interesting thing when you think about it. Uh, after some of the great wars of our history, they would have ticker tape parades in big cities. I remember the first time, the very first year that the Tennessee Titans were the Tennessee Titans. They, they had been the Houston Oilers, if memory serves, and they came to Tennessee that first year and everybody, we were so excited in Nashville to have a professional football team. Steve McNair and uh, Eddie George and, and Jeff Fisher, all those great names. And we made it to the Super Bowl that first year. And we would have won it. Eddie George had the ball and he's running and then he gets tackled right before the end zone. And he's stretching with everything that he has. And he's about that short of crossing that end zone line. 
And that was how the game ended. But we Nashvillians, we were proud. We were proud to see our new team, our guys go out there in their first year in a new city all the way to the Super Bowl. And so there was this big celebration that was planned in Nashville. And it was so big, let me tell you what, I left school early and I picked up Stephanie from school early. We met my dad down in Nashville on, there on Broadway. What was that place we ate at? You don't know? Yeah, it had good burgers. I remember that. But we, we eat there and then we, 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 we come down onto Broadway and people already lining the streets. They were having a big parade for the Tennessee Titans. Even though we lost, we were proud of them. It was so neat to stand there and just see these guys come right before you that you only see on TV. But you have this procession of, of, of Pilate, you have this procession of Jesus and of David and the ark. And about 150 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem, the Seleucid Empire had ruled Israel until Simon Maccabee negotiated independence from foreign rule. And once they left Jerusalem, it's recorded that Simon entered the city with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals, <clears throat> and stringed instruments, and with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. So the palm branches came to symbolize uh, Israelite or Jewish nationalism and victory. And in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the passage that Matthew here quotes says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. In Matthew 21, verse 5, this is exactly what he is referencing. He's referencing what Zechariah had said many, many centuries before. In 2 Kings 9, 13, there's the story of when people rushed to take their garments and uh, uh, to put them under the king, King Jehu. So you see, this is, this is not anything new. This is a part and parcel of Israel's history. But on this particular day, there's special significance. Because the king that is coming in is not coming in with an army to vanquish the enemy from the land. Rather, he's coming in to offer himself to be a sacrifice for all of the world. One person in writing an article, he had this to say, quote, David was a generator of symbolic meaning. In recalling a past, his name also shaped a people's hope for the future. He had been the founder of Israel as a nation and with all the appearances of a capital, a court, a government, in short, a kingdom. He had been the creator of Jerusalem as a symbol of beauty of military strength and of the dwelling presence of God. His name preserved the memory, idealized but founded in fact of a time when Israel was powerful and respected, when her enemies were held at bay, when the poor and oppressed were treated justly. So Judah's hopes were Davidic in shape. For a king who would not only rule Israel once again, but would deliver his people from alien rule and vindicate Israel's election, restore justice in the land, and above all, increase the standing of God himself among the peoples of the earth. And so when they shout out to the Lord as they did, Hosanna in the highest, 
This comes from Psalm 118, verses 24 through 26. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, or in Hebrew, Hoshianah. That's what they said when Jesus entered. Save now, I pray. Hoshiana, Hosanna. O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. You see, Pilate came with his entourage because he knew that there was a very important holiday coming up in Jerusalem. It was the Passover. It was one of Israel's most important holidays. But also one of the things that often happened, Jerusalem and Judea at that time was known for a lot of disturbances. For about the past 50 years or so, there had been disturbance upon disturbance upon disturbance. So Pilate is there to keep peace. Now the palace he occupied was a little bit outside the city, but he had a good shot into the temple courts from his palace. He came with might, with power, yet Jesus goes in with a bunch of nobodies. Because he didn't come to fight. He came to surrender. He didn't come to vanquish a people. He came to save a people. These two contrasting entries, these processionals into the city, one seeing the might and the power of the Roman Empire, the other, well, that's a guy riding a donkey. But little did people know that the humble entrance of our Savior and what would happen that week would far surpass the grandeur of a Roman procurator entering into that land. Think of it this way. Five days after entering as king, Jesus would die as a criminal. Criminals were notoriously executed by crucifixion. And it was always done in a public place. And the reason it was done in a public place was so that everybody else could see and you could fear. Now let me tell you a little bit about crucifixions. Whenever, first of all, we know that Jesus was scourged. The instrument that they use, it's often referred to as the cat of nine tails. You would have this handle and you would have these leather straps. And within those straps, there were sometimes teeth, uh, uh, bone shards, uh, various things that were sharp on all nine of those leather straps. Usually the person who was scourged was affixed to a post. And the Roman lictors, as they would call, the ones that would administer the scourge, they would begin at the base of the neck and go all the way down the back. More often than not, the person who was being scourged was entirely naked. All the way down the back, around the buttocks, down the hamstrings. And you might imagine that sometimes when they take that whip and they hit as hard as they did, and you try to pull back, you'd have to really yank because it was stuck. I mean, how many, we understand this, how many of you have been out in the woods doing something and you get caught up in briars and you're like, oh my God. Goodness gracious, you have to be careful to get that stuff out, but those Roman lictors would just yank it. 
There's one occasion a couple centuries after Jesus that an observer of a scourging said that the sinew and the veins of the victim were laid bare for all to see. This was brutal. Very, very brutal. Then, perhaps because of dehydration, blood loss, you're going to go into hypovolemic shock, among a host of other health problems. Your kidneys stop producing urine. They're shutting down, and anyone that knows anything, when your kidneys shut down, the end is near. But then they get him up. More often than not, historically, the vertical beam of the execution is already in place. So Jesus would not have carried his whole cross, more than likely, but he would have carried that cross beam, which was more historically accurate. And so even that, you think of all that he endured, he's too weak to do it. As he goes, he falls under the weight of that cross. So someone is conscripted to carry it for him. And Jesus gets all the way to what we say is Mount Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull. And when they drove the nail through the hand, most of the time it was probably right about here. They get right between those two bones because that bone would support. If they did go through the palm, which there are nerves there, obviously, they would have strapped the wrist to that crossbeam. But remember, before this, Jesus has been mocked. Rather than receiving the royal robe of majesty, they throw a robe on him in mockery. Rather than a diadem of gold with precious jewels and rubies, he wears a crown of thorns. And rather than being coronated on a throne with historical significance tied to the divine, he is foisted upon his throne, a cross. Now the way that it worked, a person would die an agonizing death on a cross. You're elevated above ground and your body weight, you know how gravity works, what goes up must come down, but he can't come down, but all of his weight is down. And so that he's almost hunched over like this, his rib cage pressing against his lungs so that the only way he can take air in is he has to push up with his legs or he has to pull up with his arms. When you wanted a person on the cross to die quickly, you'd break their legs because they could no longer use their legs to stand up to take that breath in. Essentially, the way you died on the cross is you suffocated. And if they broke your legs quickly, it would be quick when you died, but if they didn't break your legs, it could take a while, hours. During that time, when you think about physically what Jesus endured, you know, you ever hit your funny bone? I don't know, what, what, what person named it? It's not very funny. You get this whole shooting pain up this nerve. Where they would have placed that nail it would have struck that nerve. So you think of that quick moment when you hit your funny bone, you go, oh, wow. You know, that would have been reverberating through his arms the entire time. 
Same thing with the feet. The Romans were professionals at torturing and killing. They've done this for centuries. So five days after entering as a king, he would die as a criminal. After being paraded as a sovereign, five days later, he would know shame and disgrace. Five days after being praised, he'd be mocked. We often talk about the sacrifice that Jesus made, but make no mistake about it, folks. He did it for you and for me. Think of how we honor our soldiers and those who have endured a lot in battle and how much more so we honor those who had to pay that ultimate price. They did that following orders to try to make the world a better place. Jesus did what Jesus did to make us better. Anytime you're waning in your dedication or your devotion to the Lord, let me remind you of all this, what he went through for you. Some people can't bring themselves to go to church on a Sunday. Bless your little heart. Aren't you glad that Jesus, under the weight of the cross, didn't say, I you know this is enough. I'm not going through with this. He gave us his all. And sometimes we barely give him our sum. We didn't deserve it. But I guarantee you, he deserves much better from me. It wouldn't be until he ascended to the right hand of God that the church would proclaim that he is king of kings and lord of lords and that he reigns, that his death was, his death was for a purpose and that purpose was our sins. His resurrection was, was for a purpose and that was to defeat death and become our merciful high priest in the heavens interceding for us. Hoshiana, they said, save we pray. God has acted he has given his son. And if you pray that God would save, you realize that he has already acted. And how will you respond? You and I are to respond with faith, confessing that Jesus is the son of God. We are to respond in faith, being buried in the waters of baptism, reunited with our Lord, reenacting his death, burial, and resurrection, having our sins washed away and arising to newness of life. We put to death that person of old so that we can be made new. Think about what he did for you. Think about what he did for me. Now, anything we do in response earns us nothing. Let's be clear. It earns us nothing. But what we do in response ought to be a demonstration of the gratitude and the thanksgiving that we have for God and for what he has done for us. So how will you respond this morning? I hope it's with faith. If you need that confession, if you need that baptism, the waters are here. It's your call. You make that first step. Nobody's going to be prouder and happier for you to be clutching the back of a pew and to not do anything than Satan himself. Don't let him win. He's won enough. We see enough of the damage and the carnage that's left in his wake.
Become a part now of the family of God, remembering the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us. As we stand and sing, you may respond by coming to the front if you need to.